Hello, old man, yells at music listeners. This is Roger Stroop. No, this is not an episode about the charts of October 1998, like I promised at the end of the last episode. That episode has been delayed due to life and other things like that. It happens. I will put that one out very soon, but for now, enjoy this very, very important episode. It's the second annual Old Man Yells at Music Halloween Special. Starring your host, Roger Stroop. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. I'm Roger Stroop. This week is my second annual Halloween special, and just like last year, it's also part of my Turn On, Tune In, Rock Out sub-series about pop music-related television. Last year, I did the infamous 1978 TV movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, in which the costumed rock band played themselves, except they had alien superpowers. It was weird, it was cheesy, it was unintentionally hilarious. The only problem was that for my next one, I had to try and find something that would even come close to this. So this year, I decided to go with the idea of TV shows that presented a certain kind of music as the greatest threat to our children today. Kind of like Reefer Madness, but with guitars instead of weed. And I found a couple of shows from the 80s that fit my purposes perfectly. The Threat, Punk Rock which parents and media in America reduced to just a few stereotypes. Degenerates with crazy hair and safety pins through their noses playing loud, angry music that encouraged drug use, disobedience, and violence. The latter characterized by that peculiar ritual known as slam dancing. It was clearly something that could only turn your innocent son or daughter into a murderous junkie. And this was something that TV producers who wanted to make shows with important messages could warn people about and feel like they were making a difference. Which is how we ended up with the two shows I'll be covering for the Old Man's second annual Halloween special slash Turn On, Tune In, Rock Out number 10. Quincy M.E., Next Stop Nowhere, and the ABC after-school special, The Day My Kid Went Punk. Quincy M.E. was a drama series that first aired on NBC in 1976 as part of the NBC Mystery Movie series, rotating with other shows like Columbo and McCloud. But it proved popular enough that the network would go on to make it a series of its own. The show starred Jack Klugman, who'd become famous earlier in the decade playing slovenly sports writer Oscar Madison on the sitcom version of the Neil Simon play and movie The Odd Couple, as Dr. Richard Quincy, a medical examiner working for the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, who would find out the causes of suspicious deaths, not just with science and medical knowledge, but by going out into the world and investigating like a detective, much to the annoyance of the actual police. Quincy was assisted by, was assisted, excuse me, by Sam Fujiyama, who was played by Japanese-Canadian actor Robert Ito. The Quincy character itself was apparently inspired by the real Japanese-born L.A. coroner, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, 
who performed autopsies on such famous corpses as Marilyn Monroe, Senator Robert Kennedy, Janis Joplin, and John Belushi. Giving Quincy a Japanese assistant was probably the producer's way of paying tribute to Noguchi. I mean, it's not like they could do something crazy like make the Asian guy the lead in the show. Who'd believe that in 1976? In the fall of 1982, the show began its eighth season. Ratings were declining, so producers decided to shake things up by giving Quincy a regular love interest. Psychologist Dr. Emily Hanover, played by frequent match game panelist Anita Gillette, whom the widow Qu widowed Quincy would marry later in the season. In the first seven episodes, the show tackled topics such as gang violence, medical malpractice, alcoholism, and genetic engineering. But in episode eight, Quincy has to get down and dirty in the, in the city's sleazy underbelly to find out what is making kids these days so angry. And so on December 1st, 1982, NBC aired the Quincy M.E. episode entitled Next Stop, Nowhere. The show begins, as was customary on American dramas of the time, with a few scenes from the episode we're about to watch. I won't get into them, but they're definitely an accurate reflection of this show's tone. Then we get to the intro, the highlights of which include Quincy showing a group of young cops a dead body, which causes one guy to be sick. There's a variety of shots of Quincy in action, interspersed with depictions of violent ways to die. Then we linger on a scene of him chatting up a blonde in a swimsuit. Quincy is apparently a ladies' man. I mean, between looking like Jack Klugman and having consta constant contact with cadavers, how could he not be? We open the episode proper with a neon sign that says, Ground Zero. Then we go inside to see stereotypical punks of the time paying a guy at the door beneath a sign that says, Mayhem Tonight. Tonight is spelled T-O-N-I-T-E, because screw the man, his correct spelling. We follow a guy with a purple mohawk and a girl with a t-shirt that reads Sex Bomber. Then we go to a table, where a guy with semi-crazy hair and a denim cut-off jacket asks a girl who's made up as some kind of punk clown where her friend is. The girl, whose name is Molly, tells the guy, Zach, that her friend will be here, don't worry. She then offers him a pill, which he refuses because that stuff slows him down. Just then, a girl with long red hair, a print top with Asian characters, and a leather skirt walks in. This is Abigail, who, to many of you, might look a little familiar. That's because it's a very young Melora Hardin, who's probably best known for playing Jan Levinson Gould, Michael Scott's on-again, off-again boss-slash-girlfriend on the U.S. version of The Office. She comes to the table and says she had to tell her mom she was going to a movie. Zach says, my mom, my mom thinks I am a movie. I'm not sure what's, what side of the fine line between stupid and clever that line falls on. Anyway, Molly grabs Abigail to take her to the bathroom to punk up Abigail's face. We cut to the stage where the band is setting up. There's a mannequin hand attached to a mic stand with a cigarette between two of its fingers. That's a neat idea. 
The singer takes the the cigarette and takes a drag. His head is shaved except for two knots of hair on top, in front and back, and he's wearing a studded leather vest with extended shoulders. To me, he looks like the punk version of John Belushi's samurai character. Then we're in the bathroom, where Molly is drawing red marks on Abigail's face. Abigail says if she came home looking like this, her mother would disown her. To which Molly quips, I didn't know she owned you. Abigail says her mom doesn't want her to see Zack anymore. Molly offers Abigail a pill, which she accepts, with the caveat that she can't have anything with codeine in it because she's allergic. Obviously, she's not truly punk yet because she still cares about her own health. Molly tells her not to worry. It's just good old nudes. Cut to the stage, where the singer, who I now notice looks a bit like future Saturday Night Live cast member Chris Kattan, addresses the audience, calling them the ugliest audience they've ever played for. Then, with the traditional one, two, three, four, the band starts playing a loud and fast song with lyrics about mugging a blind man for his pencils and getting a job just to shoot the boss in the head. The chorus says to give up because life is a joke and I want to see you choke. The slam dancing begins, and Zach tells Abigail that he's going to show her some real slam dancing. She wants to join him, but he tells her to stay behind because it gets pretty radical in there. He jumps in and gets pushed around, eventually ends ending up on the stage. The band literally throws him back into the crowd, and he gets knocked to the floor. A frustrated, a frustrated Zach dramatically pulls out an ice pick. What's he going to do with that? Well, what he's going to do is get it karate chopped out of his hand. That's what. We pan around to other slam dancers. Then we see Zach fall to his knees and collapse. A horrified Abigail tries to go to him, but she's held back, and the other dancers don't seem to notice. We then cut to a bright light. Have we followed Zack to punk rock heaven? No, that's the overhead light in a coroner's examination room, as our screen is soon filled with Jack Klugman's head. He's giving his observations on the corpse before him, an unidentified Caucasian male, age approximately 18. Sam points out that there was ID found on the body, but Quincy says it was clearly stolen, didn't even look like the kid. He notices that there are old scars from where Zack has carved X's into his arm. And he says they're probably self-inflicted. Sam asks why anyone would do that. To which Quincy replies, why would anyone dress up like every day was Halloween? They notice fresher wounds on the body, including marks that indicate he'd been stepped on. Quincy says he took quite a beating and wonders why no one stopped, stopped it. Sam says they were... They were even out of control when the police got there. Lousy punks. We cut to Quincy showing x-rays to a couple of police of police detectives. He tells them that Zack died from puncture wounds to the neck. The tip of the weapon broke off in the body, so that should make it easier to identify it, the murder weapon. He also reaffirms that they don't know who the boy was. The meeting breaks up, then Quincy runs into Dr. Emily. They kiss... Then she asks, then Emily asks if she's been there yet. Who? Quincy asks. Abigail, the victim's girlfriend, says Emily. They go into Emily's office. 
And she says she's sure this is Zach. That's the only name Abigail knows him by. And she would give her life for him. Emily has apparently been counseling Abigail and her mother. The mom's been raising her daughter alone for six years. And recently, Abigail's been isolating, burning cigarette holes in her arms, shredding her clothes, and taking pills. All because of punk rock which, according to Emily, reinforces a teenager's bad feelings with its anger and, and intensity. Quincy is surprised, because he just assumed this punk nonsense was just another silly passing fad. Emily scoffs at his naivete and offers to take him to a punk club to watch children get crushed ribs and bloody faces like soldiers in some insane war. Maybe it's just me, but she seemed strangely enthusiastic about all that violence almost like it was turning her on. You never know with these outwardly prudish types. Now we're back in Ground Zero. The same band, Mayhem, is now playing a song conveniently called Next Stop Nowhere. Basically, it says, life sucks, so kill yourself. You're not helping, guys. Emily's sitting at a table watching. The owner comes up to her and sh says, she's not, good she's not good at taking hints. She says, she's a glutton for punishment, and goes back to sitting there in her pink sweater looking disgusted. Now Quincy walks, walks in in his suit jacket. He bumps into a punk girl who asks who he is. He says, I'm with the coroner's office. Cool, she says. I've heard you guys. You're a great band. He rolls his eyes, just as I did. Then joins Emily, who tells him that Abigail, Abigail came home this afternoon. She then draws his attention to the dance floor. That's called slam dancing, she tells him, as somebody throws a punch and the punchy walks away holding his bloody nose. Quincy does a facepalm. Had enough of this silly fad? Emily asks sarcastically. He clearly has. We now cut to a record player playing the same song Mayhem was playing in the club. We're in Abigail's room. Her mom walks in and takes the needle off the record, then asks her daughter, who's on her bed wearing a shirt that says, Destroy. Are you okay? Did you sleep? Can I make you breakfast? Abigail says, You can put my record back on. The mom says, I just hate seeing you get getting so upset over someone like that. Like what? Abigail asks. Mom says, This was bound to happen, and you're better off forgetting him. Abigail says, Zach was the only person she ever loved, because the two of them came from the same mold. And if you hate him, you hate me. But he was a stranger. You're the stranger, Mom. I hate you. Get out! Mom leaves the room accompanied by sad music. Abigail puts her record back on and sings along to that song about wanting to see you choke as she stands in front of the mirror putting on makeup. Now we're with Quincy in his boss's office. His boss is mad because Quincy has put punk rock as a contributing factor on Zach's death certificate. Are you joking, he asks. No, says Quincy, says Quincy. The boy was listening to music with words that literally cried out for blood. I thought music soothed the savage beast, not created one, the boss says. Quincy, Quincy reads the lyrics to try and convince the boss otherwise. But he says, if you want to, I'll remove that from the report. It's too late for that, says Emily excitedly. 
she's got a newspaper and there's an article in it entitled L.A. Coroner Quincy says punk contributed to teen's death. The boss is unimpressed, but Emily tells Quincy she's proud of him. Not only does she potentially have hidden kinks, she's also Lady Macbeth and Tipper Gore rolled into one. The boss worries that this will become a big thing, but Quincy assures him that because the story was only on page 14, nothing will come of it. But as soon as he and Emily leave the office, she tells him that she's been contacted by the producers of a Donahue-like talk show, and they want them to appear on tomorrow's episode about the dangers of punk rock. Quincy doesn't want to do it because he's been on this show before and has gotten carried away with anger. Emily tells him it'll be okay. If he gets out of control, she'll grab his elbow, and he can do the same for her. Then Quincy runs into a guy who is late turning in a report to him, and he starts going off on the guy. Emily grabs his elbow, and Quincy calms down and tells the guy, take your time. Now we're on the set of the Adrian Mercer Show. The host describes punk kids as appearing bizarre, like aliens or characters in a Fellini movie but he wants to get beyond the shock and the sidewalk masquerade to look at what some say is a time bomb ticking right under our noses and why it's attracting so many young people. That's easy, injects the singer from Mayhem, who goes by the name Fly. It doesn't cost anything to join. Mercer goes on to say he'll be talking to parents, a family counselor, a coroner who did some shocking of his own by blaming punk rock for a murder, and some self-proclaimed punkers. He turns to Quincy and says that kids have been rebelling since Cain and Abel. What's different about this? Quincy says it's the music, which is relentlessly negative without putting anything positive in its place. It says that nothing matters, not even survival. Then Abigail's mom says at first she thought her daughter was going through a phase, but now she's into self-mutilation. Mercer asks if Abby is here, and her mom says, yeah, she's in the third row. Mercer gets Abby to stand up and come down to a microphone. Abby says, It's not like I've been bit by a vampire or anything like that. Nobody controls me. I do what I want. Which is what? Mercer asks. To fight boredom, she says. The punks in the audience cheer. Mercer asks if she's happy. A punk girl on the panel says, Show me someone happy and I'll show you someone who's been conned. Abby's mom says, You used to be happy. Abby says, I used to be conned. The host asks, asks Abigail about her future plans. She says she plans to get blown away in a nuclear war because there's no tomorrow. The host then turns to Quincy and asks if he really thinks music can kill. He says punk does kill. It kills hope, it kills the spirit, and it says life is cheap. Emily adds that nothing galvanizes emotions like music. Mercer then reads some of Fly's lyrics and asks him about them. Fly says, People like you can't stomach them because they're a mirror of the ugly, sad, and violent world around them. And you don't like what you see. Quincy says, Quincy tells Fly, You just want us to give up. Another punk guy says, It's your generation's fault. You're the ones with the finger on the button. Quincy then basically says that the hippies were better than you punks because they may have been mad at the world, but they tried to change it, while you kids just gripe about it. Why don't you do something? Fly says, you broke it, and you want us to fix it? Quincy says, if not you, who? Fly asks the audience 
Fly asked the audience if there are any volunteers. And Abby's friend Molly says, Not me, man. Then an old bald guy goes to the mic and tells Fly, If I had a son like you, I'd take him over my knee and whip some sense into him. That's how you stop these kids from being violent. Violence! Fly responds that if I had a dad like you, I'd do the same thing. Mercer asks the punks if there's anything they care about. And a boy on the panel says, Just because we don't wear polyester and have credit cards doesn't mean we're criminals or psychos. We're artists. And we just want to be ourselves without being hassled and harassed. Then an older lady goes, goes to the mic and asks Abby, What's so red hot about these punks? They look like losers to me. Can't you see your mother loves you? Abby says the punks accept her for who she is. Her mom says she she accepts her. But Abby says, you just want me to be who you want me to be. Emily says, your mom just wants you to grow and become who you're meant to be. Fly says, give it up, lady. She's had her fill of your bull. Emily stands up and starts yelling at him, then starts pleading to Abby. Quincy grabs her elbow, but she tells him to let go of her, let go of my arm. Emily asks Abby if she wants to end up like her boyfriend. Abby replies, at least he's free. Now we're back in the hospital. The cops have found an ice pick in an alley near the club, and Quincy has confirmed that it's a match for the tip that broke off in Zack's neck. There are three sets of prints on the weapon. One is Zack's, one belongs to someone who's not on file, and the other is unidentifiable because it's one print on top of the other. The cops wonder how they're going to match the one mysterious clear print to someone. Quincy says that Emily tells him that the punk kids are loyal to their favorite bands and will often see the same one every night. So the killer will probably come back to Ground Zero to see Mayhem. He says the cops should fingerprint everyone who comes into the club. The cops say, mm, that's not really, you know, legal. Unless we can somehow convince the owner to make fingerprinting a condition of seeing the show. So it'd be like a fingerprint mandate. Ooh, topical. Quincy says, Emily says, that the owner's biggest fear is that his club will be shut down. So the cops say, maybe we can threaten to shut him down if he doesn't play ball, if you know what I mean. Because extortion, that's legal. At least if cops do it. Now Quincy and Sam are looking over the prints from the club patrons. They're about to give up when they find a match to the identifiable non-Zack print. Look who it is, said Sam. It's Abigail. Quincy reacts to this with a holy mackerel. Then we see Abby's mom coming down the stairs to answer the door. It's the detectives, and they want to talk to the girl. Mommy sa- I mean, Mom says she didn't come home last night and asks why they're looking for Abby. They tell her they're going to arrest her for murder. The mom says, the mom, of course, says, no, it can't be. Now we're in a dingy apartment where Abby is sleeping in a bathtub that's been converted into a bed. There's a knock on the door, and Molly lets in the blonde punk boy who has a pile of stuff in his hands. Molly takes the newspaper off the top of the pile. Then she offers Abby a pill. Abby says she's taking too many of these of those pills, and she's also getting a bad rash on her arm. Molly says that's be- probably because of nerves, and tells her, go ahead, take the pill. 
So Abby takes it. The guy's in the kitchen now, saying that he's going to make his specialty. Tofu and rice. They're vegetarians, too? These punks just hate everything, don't they? Molly's reading the paper, and she tells Abby, You're still the star of the local news, because the cops are looking for you. Abby says she's not a criminal, and she wants to turn herself in. Molly stops her, saying, You don't know the risks the risks Skip and I are taking for you. Skip. Now that's a punk name. Anyway, Molly says they could be in trouble for harboring a fugitive. Why can't I tell the truth, Abby asks. They have your fingerprints, says Molly. That's all the truth they need. Abby says she might go to Dr. Hanover. Wake up, says Molly. She's just like the, the rest. Get out of lullaby land. We don't just look different from the rest of the world. We are different. Don't look to them for help. Then Molly says, I didn't want to tell you this, but I remember what happened. I saw the whole thing. You took the ice pick away from Zack, and when his back was turned, you stabbed him. You were so zoned out, you didn't know what you were doing, but you did it. You wanted the truth? You got it. Abby says, oh my God, Puts her head in her, and puts her head in her hands and starts crying, while Skip looks on blankly. Now we're back to Quincy in his office. He says they've blown up the third print, but it still isn't clear. His boss says, maybe we can unscramble it. Quincy says the prints are just too jumbled up. No man can separate them. But maybe a machine can, the boss says. He recently saw a new graphics computer at a trade show that can separate prints out. And he says he'll call the company. Cut to the company, where a guy at a computer shows them what he says couldn't be done even six months ago. He shows them one distinct print that turns out to be Abby's. Quincy asks if asks if he can show the other one. He does, and says that the second one was put on there last. So now there's proof that Abby wasn't the last one to touch the ice pick and therefore wasn't the murderer. We just have to find her and tell her. Now we see Abby walking into an emergency room. She goes up to the guy at the desk and asks for help with her rash. The guy looks her over and gives her papers to fill out, and she goes to the waiting area. Then a couple cops come in and bring in someone they arrested who has a bloody nose. Hmm, wonder how that happened. Anyway, a cop turns around and looks at her, but doesn't seem to recognize her. They move on, and the guy at the desk is reading the paper when he notices Abby's picture. Then he looks up, but, but Abby's gone. Then we're in an office, where the guy at the desk is now telling Quincy and Emily about seeing Abby, saying that besides the rash... She had labored breathing and a fever. Emily deduces it's the codeine allergy, but Abby would never knowingly take it. So who's giving it to her? Quincy wonders. At that moment, the results come in, and they learn that the mystery print belongs to, dun-dun-dun, Molly. That makes sense, says Emily, because she hasn't been at home in a while either. They're together. And Molly's clearly trying to kill Abby, so the police will give up on the investigation. The only question is, how many more pills will it take? We're back at the club where Mayhem is finishing a song. Then we see Quincy and Emily talking to the owner. Quincy asks the owner for two minutes of stage time to ask the kids for help. The owner says, go ahead. This should be fun. So Quincy goes up and asks for attention, and surprisingly, the punks give it to him. 
He tells them all the charges against Abby have been dropped, and he was looking for help finding her. The punks scoff at him, calling him just a dog without a uniform and saying, this is like something out of a John Wayne movie. Quincy then tells them about Molly poisoning Abby with codeine, to which the kids say, that's a crock. You think we're all zombies. You're the, ki- you're the real killers. You and your whole sick society. You just use us as, escape- as scapegoats. Quincy dejectedly walks off but he passes right by none other than Skip. What's he thinking? We return to the apartment where Molly tells Abby she's found a place in Crescent City that where they can hide out until this all blows over. Once again, she offers Abby a pill. Abby again protests that she thinks the pills are making things worse. Molly tells Skip not to bother with dinner because her and Abby are going up north for a while. She keeps on pressuring Abby to take the pill, but Skip finally steps in and tells her not to take it. Dr. Quincy was right, he says, and he shows her the the part on the bottle where it says codeine. Why, Abby asks. Skip says, because she doesn't want you to know what really happened, the real reason the two of you are running away out of town. Molly starts to break down. You're my only friends, she says, and now you're going to hate me just like everyone else. She goes behind a beaded curtain and says she's alone and afraid. How could you, Abby asks her. I don't know. It was like a nightmare. I just remember the music and everybody pushing, and I got caught up. I saw the ice pick. I never meant to hurt him. Abby looks at her coldly, and Molly starts crying. Back at the Garvin house, there's another doorbell. The mom answers, and there's Emily with Abigail. Her hair's cleaned up and her makeup's less scary. Mom offers something to eat, but Abby says, no thanks. Mom asks Abby if she's here to stay. Abby says she's not sure, but at least... But, Mom says, at least the police thing's over. Abby starts crying, saying, it could have been me. I could have killed him. I was just as spaced out as Molly was. I never want to be that out of control again. Mom assures her she won't let that happen. And she'll help her Abby get a fresh start. They hug. Aww. Cut to a bar at 1.30 in the morning. Quincy and Emily are listening to a Glenn Miller song. Quincy asks Emily to dance, so they do. Quincy says, Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman. Now that was music, with the big bands and the parquet floors and the gowns. Why would anyone listen to music that makes them hate when they can hear music that makes them love? He dips Emily, then it's freeze frame and the end. So this episode was everything I expected. It paints punk in broad strokes, portraying the music as angry and dumb, and everyone involved as apathetic and directionless. Quincy, and especially Emily, come off as morally superior experts who are trying to save the children from the latest youth culture boogeyman. These kids just need to trade in their germs and dead Kennedys records for Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller, and they'll be good, obedient children. Otherwise, they'll be involved in ice pick stabbings and attempted poisonings, and who knows what else. Kids today, they're the worst. It's fun cheese, delivered with the straightest of faces. There's a reason this has a cult following, to the point where the Texas indie rock band Spoon 
recorded a song called Quincy Punk Episode on their 1998 album, A Series of Sneaks. Quincy the Show, however, would be canceled at the end of this season. Not even the self-righteousness of Dr. Hanover could save it. We'll talk about the second half of our double feature right after this. Hi, this is your host, Roger Stroop, letting you know that if you like my point of view on old pop music, you can actually find lots more of it on the Old Man Yells at Music blog. I've been looking back at top 40 charts from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and beyond for almost 10 years now, and I've done hundreds of entries and covered thousands of songs from the American, Canadian, and British charts, from the A's to ZZ Top, from Abacab to Zoom. You'll also find my Uneasy Rider tournaments, celebrating the odd ducks of the American Top 40. The 70s tourney is complete, but the 80s one is just getting started, and you can follow along on the blog as it progresses. And of course, you can find links to the latest episode of this podcast and the accompanying YouTube playlists there. So take a look at the Old Man Yells at Music blog, which you can find at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. Why is it there? You'll have to go there to find out. That's the Old Man Yells at Music blog at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. The second scary show we're looking at was something called an ABC After School Special. Beginning in 1972, ABC would air seven or eight one-hour specials a year at 4.30 on a weekday afternoon, geared to younger viewers. Around the second season, the specials began to focus on important and often controversial issues that young people were facing at the time. Sex, drugs, Alcoholism, pregnancy, prejudice, child abuse, runaways, body image, all of these were covered in multiple shows over its 25-year run. And many future stars got some of their first major roles in these specials, including, let me take a deep breath, Jodie Foster, Christy McNichol, Leif Garrett, Rosanna Arquette, Rob Lowe, Nancy McKeon, Scott Baio, Kurt Cameron, River and Joaquin Phoenix, Sarah Jessica Parker, Seth Green, Justine Bateman, Val Kilmer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jennifer Gray, Lisa Bonet, Ricky Lake, Sam Rockwell, Will Smith, Lauren Hill, Freddie Prinze Jr., and Jessica Alba. But unfortunately, none of those people are in the episode that aired on October 23rd, 1987, The Day My Kid Went Punk. We open in an auditorium where a school orchestra is playing. We focus on a family in the front row. Among them is the first familiar face in the show, Bernie Capel. Conveniently enough, he's in the center of the frame when his name comes up in the credits. You probably don't know the name. Well, maybe you know the name, but you might not know. You definitely know the face. It's Doc from The Love Boat. Anyway, the kids keep playing and they make a couple of mistakes but the crowd claps anyway. After the show, the violinist with glasses that we've seen in a few shots asks a blonde girl if she'd like to come with him and his family to dinner. She says she's busy, and she's later seen, seen walking off with a boy in punk clothes. The violinist, Terry, looks on forlornly as his family catches up to him. 
The older brother asks, is that Lisa? And what is she doing with that creep? Terry tells his dad, he's thinking, I'm thinking of getting my ear pierced myself. His dad says, over my dead body. While Terry's mom says, just make sure the needle is sterilized. The orchestra conductor then comes up to Terry and compliments his playing, saying he could be first chair violin next year. He asks if Terry is going to play any music this summer. Terry says yes, but he's thinking he might play some rock. The conductor says, oh, that's interesting. See you in September. Dad then asks Terry where he'd like to go to dinner. But then Terry's younger sister says she's not hungry. Mom complains that the concert was too long, and Dad admits that he's tired. They ask Terry if they can postpone it to another time, and Terry says, well, I'm leaving tomorrow, but I guess I can have my going away party when I come back. Thanks for being a good sport, Dad says. Okay, we're clearly establishing Terry as your archetypal overlooked middle child. This continues when they get home, where the parents are preoccupied with the projects they are, they are reminded of by answering machine messages. The dad, Tom, is writing a book about crisis management that, is, that his agent says is overdue, while the mom, Louise, is leading a seminar at an upcoming conference about why children go punk. And this is reported apparently very important for both her career and that of her boss at the university where she teaches. Terry tries to tell his parents more about how he wants to chase, change his look and play guitar in a rock band while he's away. But younger sister Caroline interrupts to brag about her spelling prowess. And then Terry's older brother Carl starts giving his speech, the one he plans to give to his young Republican club. And the ignoring continues when Terry's dad drops him off at the airport. So when Terry goes into the airport, he goes to a bathroom, opens a case containing a studded leather jacket, contact lenses, makeup, and hair product, and goes about transforming himself. He ends up looking like the tamest punk you can imagine, but he seems to be pleased with himself as we fade to black. We return to see Terry entering a hotel lobby. A woman, the hotel manager Phyllis Brooks, approaches him and asks if she can help him. This is your second recognizable face. Roxy Roker, who played Helen Willis, half of the interracial couple that were George and Wheezy's neighbors on the Jeffersons. And in a musical connection, she was also Lenny Kravitz's mother. Anyway, Terry tells her he's the new children's counselor. She says, oh, really? Well, I can't wait to tell Mr. Smiley, the owner. Have a seat. She goes to Mr. Smiley's office and asks him, what did Terry's mother tell you about her son? Mr. Smiley is recognizable face number three, James Noble, who played the governor on the sitcom Benson. So Mr. Smiley says, well, she said he was a nice, quiet kid who plays classical violin. Phyllis says, that's funny because there's a Ziggy Ziggy Sputnik lookalike waiting for him who says he's the new children's counselor. Ziggy Ziggy what's it, Smiley asks. You might be asking this too. This seems to be a reference to Sig Sig Sputnik, a dance punk band led by Tony James, who was originally in a band called Generation X with Billy Idol. 
Sig Sig Sputnik had been big in England the year before, and they got a little bit of MTV play in America. Anyway, the manager sees Terry in. Terry shakes Smiley's hand, but apparently he gets something on, on the man. Sorry about the moose, sir, Terry, Terry says. Mr. Smiley says, that's okay. You, smart, you start tomorrow, at eight, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. After Terry leaves, Phyllis tells her boss, we can't hire him. He'll scare the parents. Smiley says, we have to. Business is slow, and his mother's conference is being, bringing lots of business to the hotel. We'll give him a try, and if, he doesn't, and if it doesn't work out, we have a good reason to let him go. Now it's the next morning, and we see Terry at the nursery. A parent sees him and is shocked. So she asks Phyllis, that can't be the new counselor, to which the manager says, I'm afraid it is. Terry sits in the corner of the room, and the kids gather around him as he starts singing a song about how his time has come. Singing in quotation marks because he's lip-syncing very badly. We cut to him performing the same song on a stage with a band of fellow punk-looking kids. The song is very positive-sounding, more Rick Springfield than Johnny Rotten, nothing about stealing blind men's pencils or slitting wrists or choking. I guess punk has evolved in the five years since Mayhem's heyday. Anyway, the band hires Terry, and he leaves the club on a high. Now we're in Mom's office, where she's on the phone with Phyllis, saying that she needs seven extra sweets for her conference. Then she says, What were you saying about Terry? Phyllis says, Well, he wasn't exactly what we expected. Louise says, Can I talk to him? And Phyllis transfers the call to Terry's room. Terry, like all scary punks, is just lying on his bed in the room. He tells Mom, I'm doing okay, and thanks for the 20. She asks Terry if he needs any more money, and he says no, because he's now got a weekend job in a band. Mom says, that's great, but I gotta go. I'll call you Sunday. We're back in the nursery, where Terry is applying clown makeup to a child's face. Terry also has white makeup on. Mr. Smiley and Phyllis are talking about how it's been raining nonstop for three days, but the kids haven't been screaming or complaining. Terry may be looking weirder every day, but the children seem to be happy with him. And if his parents don't mind, who are we to say? Then we're back at Mom's work, where her boss is impressed by the posters for her seminar, which is called Punk Syndrome, How Parents Can Avoid It. The boss is going over pictures of the hotel facilities. Louise says they look great, but the boss fears they might be nicer than what the hotel actually has, so he asks her to go to the hotel early to make sure everything's good because the success of this conference will affect whether or not he votes to make her a full professor. Ooh. Now we're back at the hotel, where a woman is dropping off her daughter, who's on crutches. She asks Ter Terry where the counselor is, and he says, I'm the counselor. You? The woman says. No respectable hotel would have a delinquent like you looking after kids. Mr. Smiley comes along and asks if there's a problem and the woman continues to bitch about Terry. He says, Terry's worked here all summer and there's been no problems, so your daughter will be fine. The woman still isn't impressed, saying, I thought this place had class. Phyllis comes along and informs Smiley that the woman is Robert Rehnquist's wife. Apparently that's important, because this is the guy who's financing the conference. So Smiley's obviously nervous. Terry comes up to him and says, I'm sorry, he's sorry about the commotion, to which Smiley says, if you're really sorry, you'd wash that stuff out of your hair and look normal. 
Uh oh. Now the parents are at the hotel. They're impressed with it, and they talk about how surprised Terry will be that they're here early. Terry comes along, and he is surprised, but not as surprised as they are. They tell him, you shouldn't be playing dress-up with the kids, and maybe clown makeup would be more appropriate. He says, this is my new image. What was wrong with the old one, they say. It didn't fit with my new music, Terry says, because now he's playing with a rock band. He invites his parents to watch him play. They go, but they aren't fans of the music. What with their song about tearing up the dance floor? Wow. So punk. Louise says, These kids are all going to be hearing impaired when they're older. The parents leave, and then we see them back at the hotel. Tom is pacing, and he tries to tell Louise that without the earring and the makeup, Terry probably looks pretty normal still. Louise says, this isn't a joke. My job is on the line, and my boss will blow a gasket if he finds out. Terry then comes into the room and asks what they thought of the show. Dad is diplomatic, saying, it's not our thing, but you're obviously having success with it. Mom is less kind, calling it pure, unadulterated noise. And how can you stand it after playing Mozart and Puccini? Terry says, it works for me. Mom says, not for me. He's, he says it doesn't have to. She says, you're not alone in the world. What you do affects other people. He says, you've always told me it was okay to be di it was okay to be different. Mom says, I knew you'd throw that back in my face. How's it different from when you dyed your hair blonde? I wasn't trying to shock people. What will my boss say? Terry says, since when do you care what I do? Dad steps back in and calms things calms things down, saying, let's all sleep on this and pick it up in the morning. Terry leaves, and Louise asks Calm how he, how he can be so calm. He says, we've obviously dumped something wrong with the boy. But he's our best adjusted child, she says. Not anymore, says Dad, swooping his hand above his head to indicate crazy hair. Then Mom says, Mom starts saying, we either have to send Terry home or pretend we don't know him. Because that's good parenting, you know. Now it's the next day, and Terry's outside when he runs into Mr. Smiley. Smiley says the rain stopped so the kids can go outside today. He notices that Terry is still wearing the white makeup, and he says he thought that was just for theater day. Terry says he's decided he likes it. Smiley says, you're a good kid. Why do you do this? Terry says, because it gets attention. Right on cue, two girls recognize Terry and asks him, and, ask, and they ask him to help them get into the club where his band plays. He says, sure, just ask for me at the door. Smiley says, I see what you mean. But you can't hide behind a mask all your life. Terry says, this is the real me. I just changed the wrapping. Now Terry is taking the kids horseback riding. The guy in charge of the horses tells the mom who complained about Terry that her daughter Amy can't ride because of her disability. Their insurance won't cover it if anything happens. Terry sees this and he goes up to him. The mom is still wary, but Terry ignores her and tells Amy that there are places in the city that have special horses that are trained to let kids like her ride them. The mom says, thanks, we'll look into that. But Amy says she's tired of special things in special places. 
She wants to be like everyone else. Terry says he thinks being like everyone else is boring, so he tries not to be like everyone else on purpose. He asks Amy if she likes how he looks. He, she says he's beautiful. He says he thinks she's beautiful too and says he'll be back in a while. Cut to the lobby, where a TV reporter is interviewing Louise, saying the topic of her seminar is getting a lot of attention. He asks her if she has kids. At first, she says no. Then she says she has three. <laughs> Quite a mistake. And wouldn't you know, just at that very moment, Terry passes by and says, Hi, Mom. Awkward. Terry returns to Amy and gives her a gift, a Cabbage Patch doll with crutches. Amy is thrilled, and her mom apologizes to Terry for judging him on his appearance alone. Now Terry's back with his parents. He didn't think they'd be ashamed of his new look. Did you think we'd be proud, his mom asks? You should have seen the reporter's face when he saw Terry. Now how am I supposed to talk to a room full of psychologists about how parents can protect their kids from punk syndrome when my own son is running around looking like a freak? Terry says he didn't think what he did mattered to his parents because they've overlooked him all his life. In fact, this is the first time they've ever spent time alone with him. They give all their attention to his brother and sister. Terry says he even tried to tell them about changing his look, but they didn't care. Dad says he didn't know Terry felt that way and Mom kisses his cheek and apologizes for not making it clear how much they love him. Terry leaves, and his mom psychoanalyzes her son, concluding that he's a classic case of middle child syndrome. Dad agrees, saying he's probably un as uncomfortable with the way he looks as we are, and now that they've settled things, he might even be washing that stuff out of his hair right now. They turn on the TV, and there's the reporter who interviewed Louise, basically outing her for having a punk son. Mom says, what do I do now? And Tom, employing all of his crisis management skills, tells her, use it. What does that mean, we wonder? We see what he means when we cut to Terry and his bandmates sitting at a long table. They're being used as a panel for Louise's seminar. Some guy off camera says, I'd never allowed my kid to look like that. Louise asks a red-haired punk about his parents throwing him out of their house. He says he wasn't on drugs or anything, but that didn't matter. A man in the audience says, I find that hard to believe. Another punk says, believe it. My dad kicked me out just for coming home with an earring. Louise asks him how old he is. He's 21, but apparently the ginger kid's only 14. Another punk with green hair says, his parents would be would have been happier if he was a junkie because then they could hide it. All they care about is appearances and what other people think. Someone in the audience says, but try to see it from the parents' point of view. A punk responds, why? They don't try to see it from ours. Another guy says, aren't you just dressing like that to try to get a rise out of people? No, it's because we like it. Terry says kids are always told not to judge a book by its cover, but that's exactly what the adults are doing to them just like they did to the hippies. Does this sound familiar? A woman says, that's not fair. We were about peace and love, while you're about cruelty and violence. Terry says, sure, there are violent punks, but there's also violent truck drivers and violent bankers. 
why doesn't somebody take the time to figure out who's who? Louise says, maybe it's because we're afraid of you. Then Mrs. Rehnquist, Amy's mom, stands up and says that she was afraid of Terry at first, but once she got to know him, he's a terrific young man. Louise concludes her seminar by saying her original intention was to prevent kids from becoming punks. But after doing her research, she now says it's more important to find out why they do. After the seminar, Louise's boss tells her that Terry and his friends are a hit, and she's a shoe-in for tenure now. Another attendee shows her a picture of his son as a punk three years ago, and another one of him as a banker in a suit today. So, he says, there's hope for Terry yet. Smiley and Phyllis come up to the parents and congratulate them on a great conference and a great kid. Terry's welcome back any time, they say. Just send a picture of him first. Tom says, you, pr you don't have to worry about that. He's probably washing the makeup off his face right now. But here comes Terry, and nope, makeup's, makeup's still on. Hair still spiked. He's still a punk. The parents say, you're not driving home in that getup, are you? They'll never let you back into school. Sure they will, says Terry. They're happy if we show up at all. Now we're back home with the family at the breakfast table. Caroline and Carl and Carl are acting like they're grossed out by Terry. Carl even says he'll have trouble keeping his food down if he has to look at that every morning. Dad starts to defend Terry, but Terry says it's okay. It's not like he felt welcome at the table before. He leaves. Tom says, this place is becoming a war zone. Wow, it's usually the teenagers who make dramatic exaggerations. Carl asks, what's wrong with Terry? And Mom explains that Terry's always felt invisible to the rest of the family. Caroline says, you know, he's right. We never pay attention to him. Now we cut to school where Terry's in music class, asking his teacher what he thinks of the new look. The professor says, if you were a peacock, all the hens would be after you. He then assigns the other musicians their chairs, then dismisses the class. Terry says, wait, you didn't assign me a position. I thought you said I could be first chair violin this year. The professor says, not looking like that, you won't. It, it'll be too distracting from the music. Terry says, but wait a minute. Back in the day, they played this music in white wigs and stockings. But not today, says the prof. You've got a choice to make. You can keep on with the rock. You can even invite me to one of your shows. I'm sure you're good. But you have to make a choice. Terry leaves and runs into Lisa. He tells her what happened, and she says, It's not fair. You should be able to project whatever image you want. Terry says, You know, for the first time, I think someone is telling me that I can do that. But at the same time, I can't expect to have it all. Now we're in Terry's room, where he's practicing violin. Carl, Carl comes in and tells him about the talk the family had. And you know, you're right, we did overlook you, but we're not going to do that anymore. But you know, you didn't help. You never stood up for yourself. We're not mind readers. You didn't have to flip out like that to get our attention. I didn't really flip out, Terry says. I just changed my hair and my music. Carl says, I love you, colored hair and all. And they hug it out. Then we see Terry back at school, without makeup, and in a black t-shirt and jeans. He goes into the auditorium, walks onto the stage, and flashes back to when he used to play violin up there. 
Then we cut back to the family table, where everyone else is debating what Terry should do. Carl says he could get a scholarship if he sticks to classical, but Caroline says he could get rich and famous if he stays with Rock. Finally, Terry asks to say something. He appreciates everyone's advice, but he's got to make the decision that feels right for him. And so he announces that he's sticking with Rock for now. Caroline says, yes! Carl says, oh boy. Terry says the professor told him he can come back to the orchestra anytime, and he thinks it would be easier to switch to classical later on than to try to be a rock star at 50. Carl says, if that makes you happy, I'm happy. Mom says, I'll try to get used to it. Terry then says he's decided to tone down a bit by getting rid of the makeup. Dad says, great. Maybe then you'll also decide to return to your natural hair color and maybe even get a haircut. Mom tells Dad to slow down. Let's take what we've got for now. Fade to black, credits roll. We'll wrap up our Halloween special right after this. The Old Man Yells at Music podcast now has a Patreon. Yes, if you like this podcast so much you are moved to financially support it, now you can. There are different tiers with different rewards, such as early episode access, the ability to vote on future topics, and bonus episodes about extra songs from the charts I cover, other charts from other years, genres, and countries, and even the biggest hits of the 21st century. And you can even pick an episode topic for me at the top level. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com and search Old Man Yells at Music, or click on the link click on the links to the show notes, my social media posts, or the blog at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. Help me yell more at more music. Become a Patreon subscriber today. So what did I make of the day my kid went punk? Well, it definitely went in a different direction than Quincy did. Instead of making punk look like the greatest threat to our children ever, it made it look completely harmless. And this show was definitely more on the side of the young people, emphasizing how what they do is often misunderstood and misinterpreted by their elders. But it definitely has a couple of laughable elements. Punk syndrome? Even Quincy didn't come out and call punk an actual disease. And Ziggy Ziggy Sputnik is a classic moment of square misinterpretation and lazy writing. In spite of that, and its uh, bizarre idea of what punk music actually is, I think of the two shows, it's the one that makes the most useful points about youthful rebellion and the reasons behind it. But while it does have its cheesy charms, when it comes to camp value, Quincy is by far the more entertaining show. But if I could conjure a dream episode made out of elements from both shows out of thin air, I'd start by making it a debate between Terry's mom and Dr. Emily. Terry's mom would have better points, but Dr. Emily would outshrill her easily. And it would end with mayhem destroying Terry's group in a battle of the bands. But that's not all I have to say about punk, TV, and Halloween for this year. Just like I did for La Disco, I did a Patreon-only episode about a TV segment related to this episode. This time, it's another clip from the 80s. 
It's the appearance of the Los Angeles punk band Fear as the musical guests on the October 31st, 1981 episode of Saturday Night Live. I'll tell you about the band, how they ended up with such a high-profile gig despite not having released an album, and what they did that got them banned from the show for life. This will be up and available for anyone who subscribes to my Patreon at any level. So if you're interested, go to my Patreon page by searching Old Man Yells at Music on Patreon.com or by following the link in the show notes or the blog post for this episode. You have nothing to fear but fear itself. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. As always, if you like what you've heard, share, subscribe, and leave a review where you found it. You can also leave feedback on the Facebook and Twitter feeds, both of which are at Mr. B. Glovehead, or on the blog post for the episode, which is at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. Or you can check out the Instagram account, at Old Man Yells at Music. As always, there's a companion YouTube playlist for this episode, which I will link to in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to my Patreon, where you can support the show and get some bonus content, including the Fear mini-episode and the mini-episode about disco on 60 Minutes. And you can make my charts, just like Mike Birmingham. All lyrics quoted are for the purposes of a discussion and review. No infringement is intended. Next time in the show, I will get to that October 1998 episode, because you need to know about Canada's version of Hanson. Until then, I'm Roger Stroop, and I'm an old man yelling at music. The greatest persuader there is. Stay safe. Let me take you down to one of these clubs. You've got to see it with your own eyes to believe it quits. I've seen children come off that dance floor with crushed ribs and bloody faces, like soldiers fighting some kind of insane war. What did his mother tell you about him? Oh, I don't know, not much. Nice kid, quiet, plays classical violin. Oh, really? Well, a Ziggy Ziggy Sputnik lookalike is sitting outside in the lobby waiting for us to hire him as our daycare counselor. What are you talking about? Who's Ziggy Ziggy? What's it? The Old Man Yells at Music podcast now has a Patreon. Yes, if you like this podcast so much you are moved to financially support it, now you can. There are different tiers with different rewards, such as early episode access, the ability to vote on future topics, and bonus episodes about extra songs from the charts I cover, other charts from other years, genres, and countries, and even the biggest hits of the 21st century. And you can even pick an episode topic for me at the top level. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com and search Old Man Yells at Music, or click on the, link, click on the links to the show notes, my social media posts, or the blog at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. Help me yell more at more music. Become a Patreon subscriber today.